You're listening to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Wednesday, November 7th, 2012, and this is your host, Stephen Novella. Joining me this week are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. Rebecca Watson. Hello, everyone. Jay Novella. Hey, guys. And Evan Bernstein. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. How's everyone tonight? Tired of the winter already. Ah, you guys only just got your first snowfall. It was bad. Jealous. Really bad. bad. The time was bad. Ice underneath everything. It really sucked being at work and then having it hit, you know, like around noon before you can, you know, you can't call in and say you're not going into work. I thought you meant the timing in terms of coming on the heels of the hurricane, because... Well, that too. Well, well yeah. yeah I, was, I feel I was, terrible for the people without electricity still. That hurricane. Oof. Anyway. Yeah, right on the heels of, of Cyclon. Superstorm Sunday. We had to drive 17 hours to get home because our flights were canceled. We just beat it, too. 18 just hours. Just beat it. Oh, that's Eight right. Hours. We didn't even talk about that on the show. 18 hours with a pregnant woman. Yes. <laughs> I, yeah. I do not envy her. <laughs> Who had to pee less than some of the guys? I mean, <laughs> there was a point though where where Jay demanded that his wife pee in the woods. That's right. <laughs> That's you, true. That's true. You forced your pregnant wife to pee in the woods during a hurricane. Is that what you're telling me? I have many skills, and one of them is driving late at night in and around the border of New York City. Like if you're driving, you know, say over by uh, the airports or whatever, I have very good instincts on what exits to get off of to get gas. And Mm -hmm. I was arguing with everyone in the car about, like, look, we don't get off at this exit because I can't see an open gas station from the road. So you don't go, like, hunting around for a gas station. So, yes, Rebecca, he made his pregnant wife pee in the woods during a hurricane. (laughs) To get back to the crux. Wow. I'm so glad that I did not have to take that van with you guys. Yeah. It it was good. Up until, like, the last four hours, we were good. You know, we had a lot of fun. We were... were, um, we were on uh, Twitter with a lot of people that were following the ride, and we were throwing a bunch of trivia out and, you know, just having a good time with them. Good. We made the best of it. Yeah, trying to keep our spirits up on the heels hey, of the hurricane. Yep. guess what today is? It's the uh, Wednesday, the week after Halloween. Today is November 10th, and on November 10th, 1793, a goddess of reason was placed on a high altar at Notre Dame in Paris. Maybe you've a real heard of it. goddess. Big cathedral. That's a first. Goddess. Of well, yeah. what does that mean? I don't even a... know what that is. Okay, so all of this was a part of the Cult of Reasons Festival of Reasons. Well, there Reason. you go, cult. So yeah, well, no, it's cult in the French sense, which uh, in the in the French translation sense, which is just religion. Cult. Just a. It was a. It was a political sort of religion. Uh, it sprung up during the French Revolution, and it was a an atheistic sort of movement that started out as a replacement for Christianity. And the purpose of it, though, wasn't just to be atheist, but to literally worship liberty, reason, and truth. Oh, I like that. Yeah, as ideals, I should mention, but n- specifically not as idols. They were very concerned with accidentally personifying liberty, reason, and truth, and then creating actual gods to worship. So the goddess of reason... So they made reason, a goddess of reason? Yeah, well, they, you know... Was it they, like, a bit tongue-in-cheek? Perhaps? They had her represented as... She was a living woman, for it to not be idolatry. Yeah, I imagine that there was a bit 
of tongue in cheek involved, but literally they did want people to worship liberty, reason, and truth, like as a congregation, like getting together on Sunday and worshiping. So they were humanists. No, I'd say what are the Unitarian Universal Unitarians? Unitarians. Yeah, Yeah, I think that's that's probably closer. closer. Yeah, so deists though. No, well, actually, it it was stopped by Robespierre, who was a deist. Correct. He he instituted the cult of the supreme being as the follow up to the cult of reason. Yes, Um, and of course. Both of them were eventually banned by Napoleon. Yep, Napoleon uh, came but, along and took care of all that. <laughs> <laughs> but not before uh, everybody involved in the cult of reason was beheaded, <laughs> pretty right. much the year after the festival. So this was it didn't the last. Uh, reign of terror. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Cult it didn't of reason was followed by the reign of terror. <laughs> but <laughs> it, it did. <laughs> it did seem. <laughs> It did seem to have a hell of a lot of sway. I mean, the festival sounds like it was huge. According to some unconfirmed reports, there was some amount of depravity going on. Oh, kind France, of good, you know? sexy depravity. I've read some accounts that described the, the goddess of reason as being a famous actress of the time, but other reports call her a whore. I don't know. Well, I don't know uh, if those are mutually exclusive. No, I think the I two mean, things that, were yeah. interchangeable, actually. Yeah. yeah. At one point. It's actually a compliment at the time. The whore of reason. Yeah. <laughs> you reason hey, whore. It's nothing wrong with that. Well, if you're going to be um, a whore of something, it might as well be reason. Yeah, the, the festival was pretty huge, though. So you had your goddess of reason sitting up on an altar in Notre Dame. Uh, all of Notre Dame, like that was, that was the center of everything. Um, I wonder what the hunchback thought. They actually dismantled a Christian altar and replaced it with an altar to liberty. And they carved the words to philosophy over the front door to Notre Dame, which is kind of funny. So, yeah, it was, it was oh, a big crazy deal. Crazy times, crazy yeah. times. Yeah. Shame that everybody was... uh was batted. Um, <laughs> I mean, that's a pretty and, badass party. Everyone ends up getting their head cut off at the end of it. I mean, that's one hell of a celebration. Yeah, I mean, if you're going to go out, go out in style. So, Bob, tell us why uh, scientists are being more uh, pessimistic about the prospect of life elsewhere in the universe. Well, kind of depends on how you look at it. But, you know, guys, I'm getting, I don't know if you are, I'm getting tired of these news items. It seems, it seems like every week, you know, they say, uh, oh, life in the universe is more prevalent than we thought. And then the next week they're saying, oh, well, sorry, now it's less common. And it just seems like they keep bouncing back and forth. Um, so it's, so I find it a little bit annoying, but still, it's still a pretty interesting theory that these guys came up with. Uh, so what these scientists are saying is that asteroid belts are not just potential harbingers of death that they, people often think they are, uh, but they may actually be a vital ingredient, not only for life to exist, but also to endure in the solar system. Uh, now this theory was put together by astronomers Rebecca Martin, who is, get this, a NASA Sagan fellow. From the University of Colorado in Boulder, I thought that was really cool. Yeah, I didn't what? even know who gives that title. Oh well, NASA and our, her partner Mario Livio, who's a Space Telescope Science Institute in Baltimore, Maryland, astronomer. Um, they developed these models of these accretion disks that are in orbit around stars, and uh, they saw they kind of tested what would happen if they placed a Jupiter-sized planet, a Jovian planet, uh, in various locations in in this system, and then they. They took those observations and they, they built up their theory and they looked at 90 stars that had specific infrared um, signatures that could possibly mean that there's 
as, that there's actually asteroid belts around those stars. And I think they're fairly confident that that's exactly what it means. And they also looked at about 520 solar systems that had confirmed Jovian planets in orbit around it. And what they found was that only 4% of the solar systems had asteroids that had asteroid belts past the so-called snow line. Now, the snow line, it's kind of like this border of sorts between the inner and the outer solar system. If you're beyond it, then the volatiles that are there, like water ice, will stay intact, which is a good thing because you want, if they're intact, then they, then they could actually be transported elsewhere in, in, in the solar system, as you'll see. So the key, though, is that the asteroids are crucial. And, you know, because when you think of these asteroids, you're thinking, well, they just, you know, occasionally hit the Earth and cause mass extinctions, right? Maybe. But there's also a really, a really good upside to these asteroids. They, they deliver these huge payloads of water. Um, organic molecules, heavy metals, all, all things that are pretty essential to life. So these things didn't necessarily exist on Earth de novo. I mean, they weren't there from the beginning necessarily. The other cool thing is that these impacts, sound they sound nasty and they can be, but they also, according to the scientists, they think that they can give us a really great boost uh, to evolution by preventing species from, from you know remaining static with your environment. So they talked a lot about punctuated e- equilibrium, uh, which kind of fits well into that. Oh, they also mentioned that um, asteroids may have created the moon, right? I mean, the, the planet-sized or Mars-sized, um, op- I guess it would have to be a planet, but it could have come from the asteroid belt, hit the Earth, created the moon, and the moon offers a tremendous amount of stability to, to our seasons. Without the moon, it, it's, it's doubtful that, uh, that life could have gotten such a huge fo- foothold that it did billions of years ago. So you got the asteroids, but the the relationship between these asteroids and Jupiter or a Jovian-sized planet turns out to be really critical uh, to give life a start in the solar system, according to, the, to their theory. So if you if you think about it, if you have a Jovian and, a, and an asteroid belt, you've got three different scenarios that could potentially happen. The Jovian planet passes through the entire belt; it just goes right through and becomes what we've discovered to be what's called hot Jupiters. These are Jupiter-sized planets that are a very very close orbit around around their their parent star even closer than mercury um if that happens yeah if that happens what it would do is it would just disperse all the asteroids imagine this gargantuan planet plowing through you know even a sparsely populated uh asteroid field the gravitational pull would just you know send them all careening everywhere they would all go their own way so so that's one scenario the other scenario is that the jovian kind of just doesn't interact at all with the asteroid so imagine jupiter you know many millions of miles farther out, farther away from the sun, and so it has very, very negligible gravitational impact or influence on, on the asteroid field. That means that the asteroid field would get huge. It would, it would stay incredibly dense. If you, if you look at our asteroid field, it's only about 1% of its original mass. So a lot, 99% of the mass that used to be there has just got, I guess, through gravitational interaction dispersed. with, with, with uh, Jupiter. Yeah, it's been dispersed. And that's a good thing because if you have a really dense, super dense asteroid field, then it could potentially be pelting the Earth over and over and over. It's cool. It's like pollinization in a way, you know. Right. I mean, kind of. imagine, imagine getting, you know, imagine a mass extinction every, you know, every 10 million years or 5 million years. I mean, not very hospitable. So that clearly would be not be good for life. So the third, the third way to look at the interaction between a Jovian planet and asteroids is, is what we have here in our solar system. Uh, there's a, there's a relatively mild influence on the asteroids and it, it keeps them sparsely populated, um, so that there's only occasional impacts on Earth, but there's enough to give us 
plenty of water and, and the squishy molecules of life. So that's pretty much their, their theory. Now, that, I think there's a few ways to look at this, and it's, it's really fun to see all the different takes that the science news reporters have. Some of them are very pessimistic. Some of them are very optimistic. Some were saying that this is really good because now we know more specifically where to look for life. And if this is correct, then yeah, that would, it would be true. We, we, we know, we would know, all right, let's find solar systems where there's a Jovian, you know, just outside the snow line. And right next to uh, to an asteroid, an asteroid field, and you might find complex life there. Um, so that's one way to look at it, kind of optimistically. The, the pessimistic way to look at it, uh, like Steve was saying at the beginning, is that oh crap, you know, l- life is much less likely than we thought because the kind of relationship that Jupiter has with an asteroid f- uh, belt is very rare. And if it's that rare, then the, and if life critically depends on it, then life would be very rare, much more rare than we than we think it is. I'm taking another point of view, though. I, 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 just th- I just think there's not enough information to really be super optimistic or pes- pessimistic about this, right? I mean, how many, you know, we know of life on, in one place in the entire universe on Earth. There's one, one stupid little data point, and it's really hard. You can't extrapolate. You have no idea, you know, what it's going to take to make life stable in, in other solar systems. There's, there's just way too much that's not known. And I mean, there's so many factors that could affect stability. Who knows what else might be important? So, so well, yeah, this is a really interesting theory, and if it's and if it's true, it's good in the sense that we might have a you know increase our odds of finding life, but it also would kind of stink because you know that life might be uh, much less common than we than we think it is. We'd have um, to know, throw we, out we, a whole bunch of systems, basically. We 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 wouldn't waste our time basically looking at certain systems that don't meet certain criteria. Yeah, but the, only if we had extremely high confidence in this theory, and I don't know how we're going to get th- that much confidence. There's just too many unknowns. I, I think we should should just keep on looking. It seems that the notion that, you know, hot Jupiters migrate in from the outside and they kick out a lot of planets is, is increasingly well established. I mean, surveys have found that only 10% of systems that have hot Jupiters in them, um, have other planets nearby. That we can detect. That we can detect. And that's another limit. That's another limitation. Our, our detection equipment. Uh, who knows what we're, what we're yeah. missing with our level of uh, technology. And of course it'll get better. But very few systems have hot Jupiters in them, so that doesn't get rid of that many systems out there. So again, we still again, as you say, we need more data. Just from a logical point of view, it seems that if you look at like the conditions necessary in order to have the conditions that we're familiar with on Earth that resulted in life on Earth as we know it, and every time you look at something, you go, wow, you know, the stabilizing effect of the Moon and Goldilocks, Goldilocks zone. Yeah, we're in the asteroid right, belt. Yeah, there's so many different things. You know, we we have just the right number of bombardments. You know, to whatever. But I think it's all just retrospective, you know, or post hoc reasoning. It's like the it's a bit of the lottery fallacy. It's like, yeah, what are the odds that you know all of these things would come together and they all seem to be necessary? But yeah, because because we're looking at one of the winners, you know. But how do we know that life can't arise in all kinds of other different situations? You know, life arose and is adapted to the situation that exists here. But if other situations exist, life would adapt to those situations. And right. I, I don't. So I think we may be artificially narrow in terms of our thinking about the range of conditions in which life can occur. But you could also say, well. All right, if, if we're interested in finding any kind of life, even if it's very different from what we recognize as life here, then, then sure, there may be a broad range of conditions. But if we're interested in planets that we could inhabit, then you know, we do have to stick with a more of a, of a narrower criteria, you know, for. Yeah, but what do we care if we could inhabit it? I think all that matters just, is, 
is can we or well, well just detect it first of all just knowing it and then and then not knowing really much of anything else would still be awesome but I'll, i think the potential for communication i think is is what would be awesome i don't care if it's if it's you know if it's a horda silicon based life hydrogen whatever <laughs> if we can somehow communicate it communicate with them with mathematics or whatever uh, or you know intercept their signals and interpret them then that's that's i don't care what they're made of i i always thought it would be really cool to to Capture a bunch of really large asteroids. I mean, of course, this is science fiction-y, what I'm about to say. But you, you amass enough matter where it equals the size of the Earth. You put one like every quarter turn on our orbit around the sun. Hopefully, yeah. hopefully not screwing up orbits and whatnot, which I don't know what effect it would have. But then we have, have two four, planets in the same orbit. Then we'd have know. four planets that are going, that are on the same trajectory. You know, they're in the, mm-hmm. or okay. you put it, you put it in a different orbit. Okay, whatever. I'm just saying, you put it in a different orbit where the planet will have the relative same gravity, relative, relatively the same seasonal, seasons and, and temperature ranges and all that stuff. But yet you've yeah. created a planet in your own solar system that you can populate. Yeah, thing is though, even if we harvested every asteroid in the, in the asteroid belt, it wouldn't be enough mass. Yeah, we'd be, we'd be better off terraforming Venus or Mars. Yeah, Venus and Mars are just waiting, waiting for that. I mean, eventually we'll, we'll, we'll be able to do that. Ooh, the Genesis Project. I like that. Yeah. Well, speaking of speaking of life elsewhere in the universe, Jay, some UFO enthusiasts have been speculating that the future of ufology is in question. Yep, we might be seeing the, a real decline in the number of people that are that are interested in uh, actually studying UFOs and going to conferences. So it's also reported that there are dozens of UFO-related groups that are closing due to a lack of interest. Uh, Dave Wood, who's the chairman of the Association for the Scientific Study of Anomalous Phenomena, also known as ASAP, announced <laughs> that a meeting has been called to go over the future of, of UFO study and research. And Jay, uh, they call the meeting ASAP? <laughs> we have to have an ASAP, ASAP. Um, ASAP. So Dave Wood said... It is certainly a possibility that in 10 years' time, it will be a dead subject. We look at these things on the balance of probabilities, and this area of study has been ongoing for many decades. The lack of compelling evidence beyond the pure anecdotal suggests that on the balance of probabilities, that nothing is out there. I think that any UFO researcher would tell you that 98% of the sightings that happen are very easily explainable. One of the conclusions to draw from that is that perhaps there isn't anything there. The days of compelling eyewitness sightings seem to be over. There's never been compelling eyewitness sightings. That's the, that's a flaw in that reasoning. Well, I'll tell you, uh, you know, the, what I think he's specifically talking about is the the two incidents that are like the the big bookend incidents for UFO research and, and exploration. And one of them was the Roswell incident from 1947, which uh, talks about a UFO crashing in New Mexico in the United States, then the subsequent government cover-up, and another incident uh, called the Rendlesham incident, which happened in 1980, which had similar similar uh, storylines like the Roswell situation, which was like a UFO landed... Um, and the government covered that up as well. So what he's saying is those two incidents are the two big things that all the people that study UFOs go back to, and there isn't anything new happening. So the interest is waning, and for obvious reasons, 
he's saying that the Internet actually coincides with the decline in interest of UFO study. Why do you think that is? Well, because we're solving more mysteries. It's, it's easier for people to find information about whether or not something's the moon it's or not. Also, yeah, it's also easier to spread disinformation and prove that it's disinformation. Yeah, it's interesting. So I mean, there's a couple ways to look at this. UFOlogy has waxed and waned over the years, and it could just be that we're in a lull, and in 10 years it'll be back again, and it's just a cycle. Like, interest in Bigfoot's going to sort of come and go over years or Loch Ness Monster, right? So it's hard, it's too early to say that this, that this is a, a real trend as opposed to just the normal ebb and flow of beliefs and stuff like this. One generation sort of gets disaffected with it, but then the next generation will rediscover, you know, the same thing. The allure of believing in alien visitation is not going to go away. The other way to look at it is that uh, the internet really has changed the nature of things, you know, and that's what some of them are speculating about, the notion that things don't remain mysterious long enough to get out there. You know, the, the, the hoaxes are exposed very quickly on the internet. Misidentified Chinese lanterns are identified very quickly by somebody. So uh, there, there isn't, the internet is basically chewing up these reports too quickly for them to take, to take root. Uh, and that's causing it's starving the UFO community of cases basically to talk about. But so I don't know. I think we'll have to we'll know in five or ten years if this is a real effect or just the uh, the, the normal cycle. I kind of feel like we're going to see that happening with everything, though. I mean, a lot of this stuff just relies on ignorance and you know lack of access to information. And I think you know. Yeah with the internet and just in general. I mean, we don't really get miracles anymore, you know, and for the same reason, I think we don't, we're not going to really get any interesting alien visitations anymore. Yeah. And the only thing in my mind, the only thing that could possibly revive interest again will be Hollywood. You oh know? yeah. Mm-hmm. We They're see, good for that. Yeah. We see people get more interested in ghosts, for instance, when paranormal activity comes out and, things like that um and the big wave of alien stuff came after close encounters i think right yeah big time big time yeah Yeah, i don't think uh the desire for people to want to believe in these things are going to change much despite you know evidence or lack or lack thereof people are going to still want to have the need to believe in these sorts of things sure will they turn to something else or or will some version of UFO belief come back. They did make one interesting point, which is something that we've pointed out previously, was that now that everyone is carrying a camera and a, basically a video around with them in their smartphone, you would expect that if these things were really out there, we'd start to see some an increasing number of of genuine and compelling videos. But but we're not, you know. And the only conclusion that you could really draw from that that's reasonable. Is that what's well, maybe it's because there's nothing out there, or it's because they're shy? Yeah, yeah, camera shy. That's why I said that is reasonable. I consider that reasonable. <laughs> so the yeah. summit, the summit's happening at the University of Worcester on November seventeenth. If anybody listening to this show can go to that event and report to us on what they see and hear, I would love, absolutely love to to uh, relate that to everybody else. I'd report it on the show. Uh, now check this out, guys. I found this very funny. David Clark, a Sheffield, Clark five. a Sheffield Hallam University academic and the UFO advisor to the National Archives said, uh, the subject is dead in that no one is seeing anything evidential. And then, as Steve stated, you know, he goes on to make all of these very skeptical claims. Like the guy actually says things like, 
The classic cases like Roswell are only classic cases because they were not investigated properly. And the reason why nothing is going on is because of the Internet. If something happens now, the Internet is there to help people to get to the bottom of it and find an explanation. I, I just found that very encouraging that somebody that, you know, is an enthusiast of UFOs and everything is using some hardcore critical thinking here, or maybe not hardcore, but at least using some armchair critical thinking to come to these very intelligent conclusions about one of his biggest interests. Also, one last thing. Uh, the current president of that organization, Lionel Fanthorpe, claimed in the journal that that organization puts out that King Arthur was an alien who came to Earth to save humans from invading extraterrestrials. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, no, that sounds legit. True. Are you guys familiar with chelation therapy? Oh, yeah. Uh, cures cancer and not really. Chelation therapy is a legitimate treatment for heavy metal poisoning. A chelating agent is something that will bind to a heavy metal and precipitate it out of the blood, remove it from the blood. These treatments are often given uh, intravenously, although you can give oral chelating agents that you then you know, pee out the heavy metals. For about the last 60 years, there has been a, a, gr a group, a subgroup of uh, physicians on, and other practitioners practicing on the fringe who believe that chelation therapy is an effective treatment for heart disease, that it, by pulling calcium or some other metal out of the plaques that build up in the arteries, it dissolves the plaque and opens up the arteries like a quote-unquote roto-rooter treatment for the arteries, and that this would replace angioplasty and cabbage if it were widely used. Whether or not you think it had merit 60 years ago, it was tested, the proposed mechanisms by which it would work were all tested, and the bottom line is that it doesn't work that way. It doesn't have any effect on the plaques. It doesn't affect cardiovascular disease. It doesn't work. But uh, a number of practitioners didn't want to give up on it just because the evidence showed that it didn't work. And they've been you know, happily doing it out on the fringe for the last half a, half a century. Now, you know, we're in the midst of interest in quote-unquote alternative medicine, just a rebranding of fraudulent or unscientific medicine, in my opinion. And part of that is, you know, the, the political uh, advance of their goals, such as the National Center for Complementary and Alternative Medicine, or the NCAM. And they funded a study called TACT, or a study to assess chelation therapy for heart disease. This has been going on now for uh, a number of years. I think it started in 2003, uh, actually uh, underway. And the results of this study were just published. Now, uh, my colleagues and I at Science-Based Medicine have been criticizing this study the whole time uh, because it's we, we felt it was unethical. Essentially, you're exposing uh, subjects to a treatment which is not without risks for which there is already sufficient evidence of lack of efficacy. So we just, you would not ordinarily do this. It's only through the bizarro world double standard of the NCAM of all quote-unquote alternative medicine that such a trial would be even considered. But they did it. They funded the trial. They wasted the money. And now the results are in. And the results are da, 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 da. inconclusive. <laughs> oh, that was a bit of a letdown. Yeah, so conclusive. after that whole big to do, in, uh, the hell, inconclusive. The trumpets and everything. It's inconclusive because of shenanigans, you know, because the tr of weaknesses in the trial. If you look at subjects in the trial who do not have diabetes, which is most of the subjects in the trial, the results were dead negative. But if you pull out diabetics as a subgroup, 
they, uh, there was a slight decrease in the number of cardiovascular events in that group uh, versus placebo. More than just noise? Well, probably not. It probably is just noise. There's lots of sources of potential noise in the trial, which is why worse than doing an unethical trial is doing a unethical trial that's not ironclad, that's not really tight, uh, because then you're going to get the statistical noise and nothing's going to change. So at the end of the day, skeptics are still skeptics and believers are still believers, and this achieved absolutely nothing. So big, some big problems with the trial. One is that it had a very high dropout rate. And the dropout rate was asymmetrical. So that's always a, a big red flag in a study because if people are dropping out of the, of the study at all, uh, at anything, you know, above 5% or so, you get concerned because you're wondering, well, why are they dropping out? And the, their dropout is self-selective. It's not random. So they, that could be biasing the outcome of the study in some way. And this study, uh, as many as one in five of the subjects withdrew their consent, their consent from the trial. Only 65% of the subjects finished all of the infusions. Only 65%. Only so at what point do you, do you kind of stop and say, okay, this is no longer valid. We have to stop this and throw it out and start over or yeah, something like that? They should have done it years ago when we when we said they should have done it. And there were 60 more people dropped out from the placebo group than from the treatment group. That's odd because usually, if anything, you have a higher dropout rate from the treatment group because of side effects. So you, you have to wonder why people were dropping out of the placebo group. Placebo that, side effects. Well, no, <laughs> probably not. not. Not impossible, but what you get concerned about is that they were, they were unblinded. People drop out of the placebo group when they find out they're in the placebo group. Ah. And they don't want to waste their time getting these infusions every week when, when it's just placebo. Because it's, well, it's a pretty grueling kind of treatment. Yeah, yeah. So, so that is a big red flag, a huge red flag. Uh, also, they lumped together a bunch of endpoints. When you look at them all individually, they were negative, like, you know, like death, heart attack, stroke, uh, hospitalization for angina. If you look at each of those individually, they were negative, but if you lump them together and only in, among diabetics do you get this, you know, barely statistically significant result. So it does, by all accounts, look like noise. This study, you have to, account for more noise than than even a typical trial because of the dropout rate. There, there have been questions about the prop, the blinding all along. A lot of the centers that were, were participating in the trial were not academic centers, but kind of dodgy alternative medicine uh, practices that were doing other dodgy things in addition to chelation therapy. How much did this study cost? Millions, but I, uh, I don't <laughs> know the exact figure. Steve, is it really called angina? I was going to say the same thing. Yeah, like what's angina? Thought it was agita. Did you say I'm that so just glad, to mess with us? I'm so glad I'm not the only one that's been saying angina. <laughs> angina. But I've heard it both ways. But I say angina. I think it sounds. Yeah, better. but why would you say it? It sounds in a way that most vagina. people don't say it. Yeah. Do most people say it? Maybe I just haven't heard it. I don't it, know. There's a, there's a very good uh, and obvious reason for that. It's because I'm a physician. <laughs> And when I say it differently, people assume I'm just smarter than they are. Than better. <laughs> <God>. You asshole. <laughs> right? <laughs> Admit it. You all thought that I, w I had to be right because I said it differently than you. Yeah, I always wasn't going to bring it up. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, was, I was just waiting for a pause to bring it up. You often do that. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so worthless trial, unethical, crappy results. And now it's, and it doesn't change a thing. Waste of money. Yeah. 
burned Absolutely. a bunch of dollars. I want my money back. Absolutely. I want Terrible. my money back. Terrible. Money back. That is the legacy of the end camp. When we were um, at the end camp talking to Josephine Briggs, who oh, we yeah, had a meeting with her, we, we brought this up, you know, as one of our really major beefs. And she was very quick to distance end camp from this trial because it, it essentially was turned over to another uh, center within the NIH that deals with heart disease. And they said, oh, no, they're dealing with that now. We, you know, she really was like almost Convenient. embarrassed by it. Yeah, I was trying to distance herself from it. But, you know, this study would not have happened were it not for the NCAN. That's the bottom line. Terrible. This is what happens when you have a double standard. Not that there aren't any crappy studies in mainstream medicine or equivocal trials, et cetera. But, you know, this is one we saw coming a mile away. This is just a waste. Oh, the, I think the figure that I'm reading here is $30 million for this trial. $30 million. Oh, is that all? That's good work, boys. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Thanks. Evan, Steve, tell us about a recent study to test mediums. I'm, I'm really just dying of anticipation to hear how they did. Well, <laughs> let's, let's not delay and let's get right to it. But here's the headline because it was reported in the Daily Mail the other day. Here's how the headline reads. Two professional mediums fail tests to, dis- to demonstrate their psychic powers under laboratory conditions. So is anybody surprised at all by that headline? I totally saw it coming. Failed? Yeah. Well, <laughs> you know, a well-done medium is rare. Uh, uh, if that were the know, first time I'd heard that. The sad that thing is hilarious. I didn't even invent that joke. Yeah, that's I totally stole that from somebody else. <laughs> these, uh, these professional mediums' names are Patricia Putt and Kim Whitten. Ever heard of them? Quickly. Of course not, because... <laughs> you haven't heard of them because they suck. And uh, they were unable to demonstrate their psychic powers in a test under laboratory conditions at Goldsmiths University. Uh, they had accepted the challenge set up by the scientists at the university as a fair test of their ability. So they agreed ahead of time that this protocol was fair, right? Mm-hmm. They went into it and they said, no, no shenanigans here. We're going to do this. Uh, the test was designed by our friend, Professor Chris French, who's the head of Animalistic Psychology Research Unit at Goldsmiths. And the experiment asked these parapsychics to identify characteristics of five randomly selected people, and these people would sit behind a screen so they could not see them. The subjects remained entirely silent, while the psychics were asked to write notes relating to them. With the sitters, they asked if they could identify themselves from their readings. And so how did these Self-proclaimed psychics score five subjects. Anyone want to guess? Chance Crappy. level 20%. One in five, 20%. Random chance as pure statistics predicts. Right. They thought that was good. Right? They, did they, this they influ- did well. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. They did. Wow, Steve, they, they thought 20% was good? They got one right. Oh, my God. That's the, equi- that's the equivalent of being fascinated when you roll a six-sided die and you get a six, you know, thinking about, wow, what were the odds? Yeah, right. <laughs> you can tell a true nerd because he's the one who describes that the die was six-sided. <laughs> right, a six-sided die, as opposed to oh all those gosh, other dice. So- well, <laughs> if you said D6, then you really know, yeah. D- yeah, yeah, that's well. true. <laughs> Funny, I didn't, I didn't even pick that up. I know. <laughs> me neither. Seems, seems totally normal nothing, to me. <laughs> nothing, gets, nothing gets by Rebecca. <laughs> No, these psychics, they, they did not have a moment of clarity by all this. They did not have a moment of self-evaluation or an appreciation for the scientific method that was at hand. No. They special pleaded and rationalized it all the way. Uh, for example, Miss Whitten said, I quote, I have always wanted to be involved in a test like this as I would like to bridge the gap between psychic energy and science. I felt very comfortable about the test. 
I know what I do is very real, and it's easy for me. I'm glad one of the sitters could recognize so many details about herself. So there she is, very impressed. Focusing on the, on the positive. The there you go. Mm-hmm. She, also, she also said that skeptics need to realize you cannot see, hear, feel everything as solid matter with the human eye, ear, and body. Psychics and mediums use a whole other part of the brain, which is underdeveloped in the average man. Now, Steve, mm-hmm. Steve, can you can you explain perhaps how we have underdeveloped parts of our brain? Well, you see, Evan, you only people? use ten percent of your brain. Ah, yeah. Uh huh. The okay. other ninety percent is there just soaking up resources and not doing much. <laughs> Makes so it's sense. Kind of a mostly useless organ is sounds like what you're saying. In, well, for in, for ordinary people like ratio. you, yes, right. For the average, not yeah. for the ubermensch like <laughs> right. Brenda or whatever. But Einstein yeah, right. Jay used twelve percent of his brain. Einstein, Einstein. Most of it ended up in a jar and went on a cross country trip. That's true. Miss <laughs> uh, Putt, the other so called psychic, said. I am sorry that I appear to have failed, but I'm not really surprised. What I would like to point out is that the work I do is always done face to face, working. Blind is extremely daunting for the medium. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wait, Especially wait. What the hell does that uh, mean, though? Oh, working blind. She know, was. She couldn't see, see the, person. the person, the subject. Right. Of course, before and the test began, though, she agreed fine. to everything and said she could exactly. do it. Exactly. Right? Everything's fair, right? Yeah. It's a good test of their abilities. But what? now, oh well, this is hard now. I, I can't believe yeah. she Not- said working blind. That's the whole point of being psychic: is that you're working blind yeah. compared to conventional <laughs> exactly. people. Hello. We all know who Simon Singh is, right? Yeah. One of our most favorite science writers of all time. And he helped design and conduct these tests. He said that Patton Kim clearly felt that they were receiving psychic messages and their regular clients are convinced that they have psychic powers, but the test showed no such supernatural power. Instead, I suspect that people like Patton Kim are intuitive and, sub- and are subconsciously picking up on subtle hints such as body language, verbal cues, and so on. And this provides the illusion of psychic power, mm-hmm. and I wholly agree with that description. Um, it's being good work to our being charitable, but yeah, sure. yeah, it's much nicer than just saying they're full of shit. Well, right, yes, they were very cordial, but also less know. actionable. So, <laughs> and if anybody knows how to mind his p's and q's, it's Simon. Our friends at the uh, Merseyside Skeptic Society helped organize this test as well. So, very good job to our friends out at the Merseyside Skeptic Society. Look them up online. Did you guys know that I had a recent run-in with a bunch of psychics? How'd, how'd that work out for you? Oh, gosh. That was, that was an incredible experience. So we were invited to appear on a television show called The Trisha Show. Have you ever heard of The Trisha Show? Nope. Of course you haven't. <laughs> because, because it's on at like 9 in the morning, like right before, you know, and, and it, you know, it's basically the Oprah crowd who can't make it in the afternoon. They kind of turn this on. This was back in October, and they were looking for some skeptics to come on to their Halloween special show. I was available to go, so I told them I'd go. This was about now 30 minutes before the show started, and one of the producers comes back and talks to me and says, Hey, we have an idea. We'd like you to do a cold reading, or, you know, what you call a cold reading. We'd like you to do a psychic reading on the audience as well. And I told them, like, I'm not really prepared to do that, and I've actually never done a psychic reading, cold reading on someone before. So I told him, like, you know, it's not a bad idea. Had I known before, I might have been able to prepare something. I don't think we should do that. And they said, all right, well, just go and, you know, do do what you were going to do. Now, what they were, how the show works is that they have these segments. They invite the psychics on one per segment and then they bring them all on the end. They do some 
they do some psychic readings for people in the audience, and then they're going to have me stand up and ask the questions and basically be the token skeptic to go to. Fine. I'm cool with all that. So we're into the show, right? We're about 10 minutes before the end of the show, basically, when they're going to have me on. And one of the producers comes over to me in my seat in the audience and says, hey, Evan, we'd like you to do that cold reading, by the way. And I'm like, oh, crap. I'm not really ready to do that. I said, fine. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. So, right. So they kind of lured me in, in a sense, mm-hmm. and then kind of changed the, the script on me in a sense. So I really was not prepared. And I said, I'm going to just do it. I'm just going to roll with it. So it comes to be my time and they come over to me. And what they told me to do is they said, just stand up and start giving a cold reading to someone next to you in the audience. And I said, all right, I'll do that. But I didn't do that. So they came over to me. It was my time to go. And they say, hi, we'd like to introduce you to Evan. And he's a psychic and he has psychic abilities. He'd like to do a reading. So I said, yes, I would, but I work much better from the stage. So I run up onto the stage, basically, (laughs) right? So, you know, because think about it. I mean, the psychics are up there. They've had basically their hour to talk about all the crap that they're talking about and their cold readings and stuff. I'm not going to be sitting in the audience, right, as the token skeptic kind of, you know, it was lame. So I go up on stage. I'm standing right in front of those psychics, basically with my butt to them while they're sitting on the couch, and I'm addressing the audience. I start to do a cold reading. About 20 seconds into my cold reading, the psychics interrupt me and say, nah, no, no, you're a fraud. You're fake, right? You're not doing, you know, you're not psychic. And the whole conversation started up at that point, basically. Like, oh, okay, how do you know this, right? They say, oh, you know, and they, st- they start pointing out some things that, you know, basically skeptics would say about them. They said, you're just guessing, right? This is a guessing game. You don't know really what, really what's going on here. You're just taking shots in, in the dark, basically. Well, so we we went back and forth for roughly about about five minutes or, or so, and you know it. Uh, I brought up the James Randi Educational Foundation Million Dollar Challenge, and they got all hot under the collar about that. They say well, James Randi's a fraud, and one of those psychics accused James Randi of having been thrown in jail recently, and so forth. I had to correct them on all this stuff, and um, basically at that point the show kind of came to an end. So we wrapped up with me. Come October thirty first, the show airs, and guess what? They cut my segment entire yep. out of the oh entire show. No, they only totally, totally surprised. They totally cut me. Now they explained to me afterwards because I, I asked them. I said, "Look, I said you guys cut me." I said, "What happened?" They said, "Look, it wasn't your performance." They said, "We really like what you did and what you brought to the show. It was just a matter of time. We were over time, and we just felt that that was the easiest segment to edit out." Okay, right. That's their excuse. I think it was because, and Steve, you know, you had the same feeling. Yeah, me that. too. Yeah. I was basically too, you know, very effective, and I pissed these psychics off and got them out of their basically their demeanor and their stage presence, which is very friendly and kind and caring and compassionate. And I turned them into like foaming at the mouth, you know, angry people on stage and sort of knocked them off their game. And I don't think the psychics liked that very much, and they probably had some things to say. Uh, to the to the show people right. and said you know like we don't want that to air so I you know that could be another reason why they can't so, handle the truth yeah. right basically couldn't handle the truth they said they're going to invite us back for more segments in the future we will see yeah they always say everything uh, I told you before yeah, you went on Evan because I've had you know enough experience with these kind of TV shows they're always going to pretend like they're on your side they're not going to be honest with you everything's going to be great and then you know they'll do what they want to do in the end. And yeah. anything they say doesn't mean a thing. Right, right. I'm not upset that I did it, right? No, it's a good experience. Feel, I don't feel it was a waste of time. It was a really good experience. It was absolutely a great experience and got me to brush up on a bunch of stuff. Evan, any chance of them sending you the uh, footage 
so you could see yourself? I I will request it. I don't, you know, I'm not going to hold my breath on yeah, that Yeah, they're not going to bother. Yeah, it's, you know, but, you know, it's not a bad idea, Jay. I think I will ask him. Or next time, next time any one of us gets invited, we could just tell them beforehand, okay, but I want the raw footage of my appearance. All right, well, Evan, get us up to date on Who's That Noisy? A couple weeks ago, we played... Who's That Noisy, which aired on episode number 379. If you all remember, we played the landslide uh, sound effect, and we mentioned that um, that was the correct answer, but we didn't know who the winner was at the time. Uh, so we have that now, and the winner is no one. <laughs> no one was able to detect the landslide. There were some other guesses. A couple no one has uh, won several times now. Mm. Yeah, it's been a few times. I wonder if they're getting a little too, a little too tricky no. in a sense. Keep them tough. Yeah, I think I think so. And then episode three eighty. So suddenly, mitosis takes place. The DNA strand separates in a dazzling display of color. Hi, prophase. Hi, anaphase. <laughs> Do you guys remember that? And that was that was our dear friend Crow T Robot. From Remember Crow T Robot from Mystery Science Theater? MST3 Crow T Robot is a friend of mine, actually. I know you're you are chummy with the uh, some of the people who work on MST3K, right, Rebecca? Yeah, it turns out a lot of the MST3K guys are skeptics, and through one venue or another, I've met a whole lot of them, and yeah, we get along really well. And uh, one of the crows is Bill Corbett, who uh, yeah, is a good friend of mine. Yeah, you uh, introduced us at DragonCon last year. Yeah. Now, there was an email that we received back on October 15th that actually inspired me to create this one as a Who's That Noisy? I'll read it to you real quick. It's from Mike Lupo in Michigan, who wrote, Love the show. Just wanted to thank you all and say you guys do a wonderful job. I just have one question for you guys. Did Evan do the voice for Crow T. Robot on Mystery Science Theater 3000? <laughs> what? <laughs> Did you? Did you secretly do that? I- you know what? I, <laughs> that struck me as well. Did you so sit incredible. in? I'm like, I, I, look, I don't think I sound like the voice of Crow T. Robot. I mean, that's, that's just me talking. Yeah, but, but I did do the voice of Manny on Ice Age. That's true. I thought it was Madagascar. Oh, that's, no, it was the Ice Age one, right? Yeah, the, the yes. mammoth on Ice Age. Uh, well, who actually? Yeah. Either he or Ray Romano. Yeah. Ray Romano. Not, yeah. not sure. Yeah. Yeah. So that that was a that was a very high compliment from Mike Lupo in Michigan. So thank you, Mike. I really do appreciate. Did that. anybody get that correct? Uh, yes, there were a couple correct answers to that. Magnus M from the message board was the first one to guess correctly. So well done, Magnus M. And what do you got for this week? I got a good one for this week, Jay. You're gonna like this one. Yeah. Holy shit! What the hell was that? <laughs> Evan, if you told, if you said that that was actually a recording of me 20 years ago doing something stupid with you guys, I would believe it. Or last week, yeah. probably. Yeah, you're right. 20 years ago, last week, yeah. Is it much difference? Uh, so, you know, I'm not looking for a name, obviously. I'm not looking for a name of a person who's involved in that, but. There's some clues in there as to kind of what's going on. And so give us your best description as to what you think's going on in that particular noisy. And you can send your answer to info at theskepticsguide.org or sguforums.com. Join our forums and post your reply there. Good luck, everyone. Thanks, Ev. Uh, we're going to do one quick email. This one comes from Ian Redmond from Zimbabwe. 
Is this our first email from Zimbabwe? I think so. He, and Ian asks, simple question, so a simple answer, I hope. Why does everything go round? Rotate, I mean, and not just when you're drunk. Planets, ah. stars, galaxies, and maybe the whole universe. Why? How did they get going? And how come when I take off the front wheel of my bike, this is actually a separate question now, and hold the axle on one side, doesn't it fall down when it's spinning? Bending gravity? I know about precession, but I'm still confused. Thanks, guys. And remember, take care out there. So, yeah, why is everything in the universe rotating and spinning and revolving? It's really all about gravity. Spinning and everything that spins in the universe is really all about gravity, which, of course, dominates the universe, which is, which is kind of weird when you think that gravity is the weakest force by far. It's, it's so much weaker than, than, than any of the other forces. But the reason why it's so dominant is because it's, it's always attractive. There's no, you know, negative gravity to cancel that, cancel it out. So it, it affects everything. And things in the universe will collapse because of this gravity. And if there's any asymmetry at all in this collapse, it's going to start spinning. And one thing you know from watching, you know, what's that, the iconic image of a spinning ice skater as the arms come in, so it, it spins faster and faster, and the next thing you know, you've got this this more dense object, whether it's a, a solar system or a galaxy or, or a planet that's spinning that's spinning faster and, and faster. And that's that's pretty much the answer on, on that. It's just really all about gravity and, and, and asymmetrical collapse. But, Bob, one question but is... Bob. <laughs> but, Bob. But, Bob. Um, <laughs> angular uh, moment, there's the conservation <laughs> of angular momentum, and some people right. said, okay, well, the universe... Yeah, you know, after the Big Bang, where did the angular momentum come from? Why, why isn't there uh, net zero angular momentum? Now, one answer is that, well, there could be net zero angular momentum in the universe. Things spinning in opposite direction will cancel each other out. Um, and as you said, you know, things would have to be perfectly stable without any angular momentum in order for them not to be spinning now. You right. know? So it's just impossible for it to be that perfect. However, I did find an article from just a, a year ago. This is a, a, uh, a study looking at about 15,000 galaxies, noting the spin, the axis of rotation of each of those galaxies. Uh, this was uh, research led by Michael Longo from the University of Michigan. And he found that there was, about, there was an excess of about 7% uh, angular momentum in the counterclockwise direction when you look at 15,000 galaxies in one direction. He says that uh, this could mean that, you know, so that there's a net angular momentum to the universe, therefore, which means that the big the universe could have begun spinning. The whole universe could have had some net angular momentum right at the point of the Big Bang. Hmm, sure. But, Why not? Yeah, but we, I think we would need uh, more surveys to confirm this result, you know. But that's interesting. So we don't know. We don't know if there's net angular momentum to the universe or not. This one suggests that there might be. And what about his other question about the spinning the spinning wheel? That's a deceptively one... complicated question. Is it? I mean, I thought that was pretty much conservation of angular momentum as well. Because if you think about it, all the all the particles that the wheel or wheel is composed of are moving in a particular direction, and they want to keep going in that direction. But so you'd have to apply an extra force to make it deviate from from that path. So, yeah. Uh, well, it's also the it's also the if you do the calculations, the vector of forces. You know, any lateral force on a spinning object like that gets translated into 
a procession force. So it, it, instead of going over, it goes around. And that's what he meant. Right, right. He knows about procession. But you know, you know about the whole, the why a bicycle stays upright question? Because I used to, I thought that classically that was the answer. It was all about the, the forces involved right. with a rapidly rotating object that's spinning wheels. It's more complicated wheels. than that? It's actually a lot more complicated than that. And, I read a number of articles about it, and the bottom line of it all was that physicists don't really know exactly why, you know, the forward momentum of a bicycle it keeps it upright. It's a miracle. Um, they haven't been able to crunch their numbers, huh? Yeah, it's just it's, the physics of it are deceptively complicated. Hmm, interesting. I didn't know yeah. it was, you know, even partially unknown. Bumble- bumblebees shouldn't be able to fly. Oh, God, don't get me started. Um, <laughs> bicycles shouldn't be able to stay up. Steve, um, no, it's not that they shouldn't be able to. We're just not sure exactly, you know, what what all the forces yeah. involved are. Steve, do you remember when that that phenomenon was first demonstrated? Was it in uh, Mr. Coffin's class in physics in high school? Remember, I remember he had a wheel you could hold on to the to the axis, yeah. and the wheel was spinning. And the uh, you know trying to move it was incredibly difficult. It's so counterintuitive. It just but seemed also bizarre. Sitting in a yes, in a chair, chair that would spin around. Yeah, so when he would rotate the wheel, you would spin around. Yeah, showing Mr. the translation Mr. of forces. Yeah, Mr. Coffin. Mr. Coffin. He was yeah. awesome. He was C O F F I N. Yeah, he just had the driest sense of humor. He was. Oh, by the way, that's not our first email from Zimbabwe. I found one from April fourth of this oh, year. Good so. job, Evan. <laughs> Way to debunk that. Uh, and the first line of that email from April fourth. Aside from Rebecca having the sexiest voice in podcast world uh, and he goes on to say something about vaccines so see we all have notable voices except for bob and jay right except well they're notable but, for sounding but, like but each bob. other yeah oh, right. so so we are notable nah. it's time for science or fiction each week i come up with three news items Four facts, two genuine and one fictitious. And I challenge my panel of skeptics to tell me which one is the fake. Is everybody ready for this week? Yep. Mm-hmm. Okay. See. No theme, just three news items. Item number one. Curiosity's atmospheric analyzer has confirmed the presence of methane in the Martian atmosphere, keeping the hope of Martian life alive. Item number two. A new computer model supports the grandmother hypothesis that grandmothers provide a fertility advantage to their daughters, thereby driving the evolution of longevity. And item number three, physicists have created a device with a refractive index of zero, meaning that the phase velocity of light within the device is effectively infinite. Rebecca, go first. So confirm the presence of methane in, on Mars. That doesn't sound right to me, right off the bat. That one sounds like... I don't know. Methane is a big deal. And I think that this has been up in the air for a while, huh, so to speak. <laughs> and I feel like it'd be a big deal if they actually found methane. So I feel like I would have heard that. Um, so I'm not sure about that one. Grandmothers provide a fertility advantage. They're daughters. Gross. What? Genetic? Do you mean genetic, Steve? Or do you mean they're giving them dating advice? <laughs> Are they setting up their daughters? And why, I don't understand, grandmothers, their daughters, oh, okay, so their daughters have kids, okay, and that makes them grandmothers. Um, so, okay, Sorry. so maybe they uh, pass along something genetically, or maybe, you know how grandmothers are with setting up 
granddaughters on dates, you know, they meet a sexy plumber and they're like, oh, you dating anybody? You should meet my granddaughter. So maybe that's what that means. Uh, oh, but this is about, this is about longevity, not necessarily just fertility. So I guess it would be grandmothers living longer and their daughters live longer. I don't understand. Longevity and fertility. This one just confuses me. There's too much happening that I don't understand. <laughs> the same can be said with the last one, because I don't know what a refractive index is. I don't know what the phase velocity of light is. <laughs> um, yeah, that's, that's really confusing to me. Uh, I know what refraction is. I know what velocity, like I know what each of these words means on its own, but when it's combined, I'm frankly baffled. But luckily, I'm skeptical enough of the presence of methane on Mars that I feel pretty confident saying that that one is the fiction. So I'm just going to go with that, even though I don't fully understand the last two. Okay, Bob. Start with three. I know I know you can have refractive index less than one, but there's a lot of misconceptions about that. I'm going to have to go with the idea that there's some little quirk in here that I'm not getting that would kind of make this correct. It's just too weird to be to be the fiction. The grandmother hypothesis, whatever. I'm just going to go with. I'm just. I'm going to go with one. I mean, curiosity has been looking for methane. I know other experiments have found it, but just historically, it hasn't found it. So that that's why this is a big thing because now it's found it. But um, I just I don't think it's found it yet. Um, I'm, I'm, for some reason, I just think that one is the fiction. So I'm going to go with it. All right, Jay. Yeah, I agree with Rebecca on that one about the refractive index of zero and the phase velocity of light. I'm, you know, without going into detailed explanation on on all these, I think that one's the fake. The go, the, the light one. <laughs> yeah, because okay. everyone's. That's not what I said. Though. <laughs> <laughs> you said you agreed with me. No, I agreed that I understand the pieces, but not the whole. You know, I understand oh, okay. the definition right. of those words and all that, but but I just, you know, it that one's bullshit. You know it. All right, Evan. <laughs> Yeah, the, I'm having trouble there with the uh, refractive index of zero and, you know, this device and all that. A little, little beyond my pay grade, I must admit. So I'm moving on to the other one about um, the grandmother hypothesis and that computer model. Um, ch- there's a child-rearing aspect to this, I'm certain, that uh, comes into play here about perhaps how grandmothers uh, take a part in the family of some sort. And somehow they add to that uh, longevity, I believe. Uh, the you know the one about Mars and the Curiosity's atmospheric analyzer. Boy, methane. There's been so much speculation as to if there's methane, what they've detected in the past. They think they've detected methane. What was the source of the methane? But confirming the presence of methane is so big because it's been talked about for so much. We've been talking about that. I think as long as we've been doing the show, if not longer methane on Mars. And if that was confirmed, that's the kind of thing that I know I keep an eye out for. I haven't seen anything on that. I think that one's the fiction. All right. So you all agree that a new computer model supports the grandmother hypothesis that grandmothers provide a fertility advantage to their daughters, thereby driving the evolution of longevity. And that one is science. This idea has been around for a little while. The idea here is that Women surviving beyond menopause, you think, okay, well, they can't have kids. So what is the evolutionary Darwinian advantage to longevity beyond menopause? Well, as grandmothers, they participate in, as Evan was saying, in the care of their grandchildren, thereby freeing up their daughters to have more kids. And that creates 
an evolutionary pressure for longevity and that longevity in our species in general is driven by this selective pressure for having grandmothers around to help raise kids so that their daughters will have more kids. Hmm. And they did a computer model looking at primates and showed that, yes, that this that all works out that way so that it supported the grandmother hypothesis. Uh, let's go to number one. Curiosity's atmospheric analyzer has confirmed the presence of methane in the Martian atmosphere, keeping hope of Martian life alive. There has been, as Bob was saying, there has been this question in the news, you know, Curiosity sniffing the Martian atmosphere. And it was very recently reported, Bob, that after four analyses, with 95% confidence, they could say that the Martian atmosphere has as much as five parts per billion of methane. What? But as little as zero. So, yeah, so the range is between zero and five. So they cannot confirm the presence ah, of methane. Yes. They cannot, right. And yes. Sure. Mm-hmm. Didn't get you on that, huh? Too big. <laughs> uh, which is interesting because, you know, they, they seem to pre- pretty clearly have detected a pulse of methane in the Martian atmosphere previously. Yeah, so this and, is really, yeah. this is really, uh, Annoying and upsetting, like crap, because that yeah. was a huge find. You know, when it was it was in the news like a year a year or two ago, they right. were really t- they were really hyping it up because because methane is destroyed very quickly in the atmosphere. So if it's mm-hmm. so if it's in the atmosphere, it means it was created recently, which means recently. that and so and life is you know it's one of the byproducts one of, the of life. Yeah. Right, one of the there's lots of other ones, but life is one of them. That's one so of the yeah, one of the one of the possibilities is that the methane that was detected previously was essentially belched out from some geological process, but it's not a continuous release of methane from life mm. in the soil. Rock farts. A rock fart. Yeah, it was a rock fart. <laughs> um, as opposed to a, a Martian fart. Disappointing if um, if that's the final result. Still holding out for little Martian microbes cranking out methane, but it's not looking good so far. All right, let's go on to the last one. Which means? Which means that physicists have created a device with a refractive index of zero, meaning that the phase velocity of light within the device is effectively infinite, is science. Now, the the headline really caught my eye. The headline is even worse. I couldn't couldn't use it fairly. Worse than that? Your nanoscale device makes light travel infinitely fast. That's the headline. Oh, Jesus. AAAS from Science Magazine. So, of course, that caught my interest. Light travel infinitely fast. So, uh, yeah, the refractive <laughs> index is essentially the speed at which light travels through a substance compared to the, the velocity of light that, that it travels through a vacuum, which is about 300 million meters per second. A refractive index of less than one indicates that the light travels faster than the speed of light in a vacuum in that substance. And a refractive index of zero means that it travels infinitely fast. So how could that be? Well, it has to do with the phase velocity of light. I thought it was only fair that I threw that in there to, yeah, just to yeah, give I you mean, a clue that we're not talking about the real speed of light. Yeah, so that's what actually, made me think it was likely, as, as opposed to group velocity, right? I mean, exactly. that's another type of velocity. Yeah. yeah, so the group velocity is the velocity that has to obey the law of re- relativity, that the, the, the ultimate speed of light. And in fact, even with this device, where you have essentially the the different the peaks and and troughs of the waves of light can exist at every position along the beam at the same time. So like the way this wave velocity can exist is traveling infinitely fast. So it's basically everywhere at once. But the group velocity is the one that would control, for example, the uh, transmission of information. 
Right. So information still cannot be transferred at faster than the speed of light. A good, anal- a good analogy, Steve, is if you're looking at a wave in, in the water, like in a lake or in the ocean, and sometimes you'll see a, a big wave, but you also see these little kind of undulation, undulations or waves on top of that wave. So th- those little undulations on the main wave is the phase velocity, and they can go faster than the wave is traveling, uh, but yeah. the, the speed of that wave would be the group velocity, and that's not gonna, that's not gonna go faster than whatever limit than the you might limit, impose. Right. Yeah. Right, but I guess the refractive index is based upon the phase velocity, not the group velocity, according to this, uh, which is why you can have the paradoxical substances with a with a yeah. refractive index of less than one. And also, Steve, the um, the refractive index would determine how much the light is bent as it enters the yes, new medium. Right. Exactly. But they do think that this little nano device that they made that you know has this this property could be used in electronics in some way, but it wouldn't allow for, like, say, optical computers with instantaneous transfer of information. Would not allow for that, unfortunately. So, you know, we'll see if it's a physics curiosity or if it has some practical application. We'll see. But still, it's still a phase velocity that's effectively infinite. That's interesting. Yeah, it's interesting. Mm. It's, it's hard to uh, to imagine what's actually happening, but yeah. It sure is. All right, well, good work, guys. Sorry, Jay. What? <laughs> <laughs> phase velocity, zero. Yep. Did you expect me to win? I mean, <laughs> no, just passing it along. All right. Well, we do have to end the show, unfortunately, on a sad note. Uh, a dear friend of the SGU, Mike Lassell, died two days ago as we're recording this on just after midnight on November 6th. Uh, Mike was sick for a long time. Um, the, the, the quick medical facts are that Mike was born with a heart defect. His heart was reversed, among other things, and he, he underwent four surgeries in his lifetime, I think starting in infancy, to get his heart to function at all, you know, just to get the blood to be pumping in the right direction. But his uh, right ventricle was doing the work of his left ventricle and vice versa, and you know, the heart just doesn't have much longevity when, it, when it's uh, functioning that way. And we, so we, you know, we knew this obviously about Mike the whole time that we knew him. Mike never really had a lot of endurance because his heart functioned well, well, fine for everyday activity. Like he could never do anything athletic and, and definitely was limited in his endurance. And the expectation was that when the time came, when, when his heart started to, uh, to give out, that he would be put on the transplant list. He would get a heart transplant. So earlier this year, Mike really started to become sick. You know, he really started going downhill fast. And again, the expectation was like, okay, it's time for the heart transplant. You know, let's get things going. Uh, but then his cardiologist essentially told him that he wasn't a candidate for various reasons. You know, that is, he wouldn't really take the transplant very well. He had, there was a lot of scar tissue from his previous surgeries. So he had antibodies that would increase his risk of rejection. You know, this, we went around for a while with this, but that was the ultimate conclusion was that he couldn't get a heart transplant. And then um, there were other potential options that didn't pan out either. So at the at, in the end, all they could really do for him was just medication, just to try to eke his a last bit of function out of his heart. And unfortunately, you know, his heart function just deteriorated and, de- and deteriorated, and uh, unfortunately, you know, finally gave out. When we um, first were contacted by Mike, he, he sent us an email and. And told us about a fan page that he had started called SGU Fans. And uh, it just quickly became one of our favorite things to do here at the SGU, which would be to read 
the quotes that Mike pulled out from last week's show, and it was just funny to read them for some reason as opposed to hear them. It just added a different dimension to it. And then um, we just started to chit-chat with Mike more and more over email, and then we got on Skype with him. Mike and I developed a friendship instantaneously. But things didn't really start to... Uh, we didn't really start to consider Mike to be a close friend until he came down for Perry's memorial. And that was it. I mean, after that, those couple of days with Mike, we realized that not only was he, you know, just a good person, but that we had a lot in common and that, you know, we just felt a huge friendship with him. Yeah, super nice guy. Like, this, definitely one of those people who's like the nicest guy you'll ever meet. Very Canadian. Yeah. And then very quickly, as the years, you know, scrolled by, but, you know, very quickly after that time that, that we met him, uh, Mike just started working with us very closely on all the things that we do here at the SGU. And when I tell you that Mike, he did an enormous amount of work for us. He did. And he did it never asking for anything. He never asked us for anything. Just wanted to help, believed in our, our project, believed in you know what we were trying to do with the SGU. You know, he loved all of us. And just wanted to be a part of this in any way that he could. And then, you know, we gave it to him because we, he, he kept on asking for more responsibility and we kept on giving him more responsibility. And it got to the point where he was doing post production on five by five. He was managing, you know, all of our software and blogs. He was doing research for us. He was, you know, he would do, he was involved in everything that we did in some way or another. He got involved. You know, he came to our live events with us and acted as our manager at, at some of the events just to help us stay organized and stay on point. But much more importantly than, than our association with Mike on the SGU, Mike, Mike became one of my best friends. You know, even though I knew this was coming and Mike and I had talked about it and then, you know, even a month and a half ago, Steve and I had a very serious talk with Mike and just said to him, we wanted him to tell us if there's anything you want us to do, is there anything you want, you want us to say? You know, we'd even have you come on the show and everything. And Mike was so humble and so, you know, I don't know how to describe it. Like when you meet someone like Mike, everything about him is is to make you feel good and to make you laugh and to put you in the right mood, not to put him in the right mood. He was just so selfless. And he said, I don't really have anything anything to say. And, you know, and I know that if I were in opposite positions with Mike and, you know, I was dying and, you know, I would I would have so much to say to so many people about so many things. But I think Mike was just content with what he had going on in his own head, you know, like it just was, he didn't need to do those things. He wasn't that kind of a person. He didn't have to yell at anyone or, or, or speak, speak ill or in angry words or anything. He just, just was a giver. He was very brave throughout the whole thing. I mean, he, very surprising amount of just acceptance and maturity. You know, he, like, again, we were, the, the weirdest thing was like up until a few weeks ago, Talking to him on Skype or on the phone sounded perfectly normal. Like Jay, he and I had this perfectly normal conversation with him, yet with the knowledge that he was go he was you know going to die very soon. And it, but he but he sounded perfectly healthy and perfectly fine. You know, just talking on the phone. But he Mike totally understood what was coming. He was not in denial at all. He totally got it. But he was just like yeah, it's just a degree of acceptance that I found very uh, very amazing. Yeah, very amazing because you don't know how, you know, you just have no idea how you're going to react yeah. when thrown in that yeah. position. Being in that position, you know, we've, we, I likened it to how sort of Perry went as well. Yeah. In that, you know, Perry definitely saw what, 
the handwriting on the wall and what was coming. And, you know, he also faced it with a certain bravery that Mike also yeah. faced it with. And most and, and also like Perry, Mike didn't revert to wondering about, you know, should he be getting on a knee and praying no, to something no, or, never. or someone, right? Had no inklings to do anything like that in which it's it's understandable that people can kind of start to drift towards the that end of the spectrum right when you're when really life and death is on the line here and he stayed true and brave and is so admirable in the way that he faced this it's it's just so inspiring to me all i could say is uh i was i was i was absolutely honored to be his friend and uh you know I've been crying all week and I can't can't seem to have it make much sense other than, you know, this is going to happen to all of us and it's in a strange way it's the only comfort I can take from it is that we're all going to end up in the same place but he was one of the best best people I ever met in my life. Yeah, he's a great guy. You know, definitely be, you know, became one of our just one of the group, one of our friends. We you know, he he will be missed, his contributions will be missed, you know. Most listeners of the show will write will know Mike from uh the end of the year episodes that we you know sort of became a regular thing to invite mike onto the uh the the year-end wrap-up show with us yeah i have a i have a couple of audio clips of mike so people might might remember who he was mike you're going to give us the science or fiction stats so far this year oh god (laughs) are you guys ready for this so (laughs) yeah definitely my worst year of all time Uh, actually yeah I mean, there's some uh, some uh, funny conversation um, between uh, Rebecca and Steve about birds uh, early on in the year. Could you be more specific? Uh, I know uh, it was about bird jizz or something like you that. You mean when we were talking about bird jizz? Yeah, you yeah. know that time we were talking about birds. That's that time. It's going to be really hard to do the wrap-up show. This yeah, year. yeah. And not just because Mike did all of the work <laughs> preparing for it. <laughs> he did. Yeah. You know, there the one thing that. Um, I learned from this experience that was so profound was it was the first time in my life, you know, when Perry died, I didn't, I didn't have the moment that Steve had where he was with him and they, they both knew it was coming. Um, Mike and I knew this was coming and there is nothing you can possibly say to comfort someone. You know, there's no religion. There's no, it's it. Like, you know, from an agnostic or an atheist perspective, it was, it was so much more real. It wasn't like you can say okay, and I'll see you or whatever. Like it just that that there is none of that. Yeah, it's interesting. You have to like really confront your feelings and the reality and what the loss means. You can't just whitewash over it with some, you know, comforting notions about an afterlife or. We don't have any platitudes. Right. Yeah, and I was thinking as we were, you know, on the on the eight hour drive home, my wife and I barely spoke to each other just because we we were so floored by everything. We it just we just could not talk it just wasn't happening and i was in my head the whole way and i just was thinking to myself that um i i wouldn't want it any other way i wouldn't want to be able to give myself excuses and and things like a lullaby to make me feel better like i wanted that moment was so real and it was it was raw and it, and that's what i think it should be i mean that's you know, you don't, you can't live your life with your head, you know, full of things that take away the pain. The pain is part of life, and we have to, we have to learn to live with it and and work through it. Well, you will be missed, Mike. Yeah, Mike. I, if I, 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 you know, I did tell Mike this, and 
I told him how much I loved him. I told him how much he means to me. And I told him that the work that he did is joined with the work that we do. And it, hopefully it'll live on, you know, past all of our time. Well, he certainly will always be remembered on this show. Jay, you going to close this out with a quote? Yes, I am. I, uh, Pick this quote uh, before Mike. I knew that Mike was a huge fan of Carl Sagan, and uh, this quote was sent in by a listener, and I, I save all the quotes that people save me, and I just go through them, and I try to find one that has meaning for that show if I can. And I stumbled on this one, and I do remember actually the first – I don't remember the first time I read it, but I do remember reading this before, but I thought that Mike would really like this. And this is about uh, space exploration. So Carl Sagan starts by saying that, Space exploration is in financial trouble, yet by many standards, such missions are inexpensive. Mariner, Jupiter, Saturn cost about the same as the American aircraft shot down in Vietnam in the week in which I am writing these words, Christmas 1972. The Viking mission itself costs about a fortnight of the Vietnam War. I find these comparisons particularly poignant. Life versus death, hope versus fear space exploration and the highly mechanized destruction of people use similar technology and manufacturers and similar human qualities of organization and daring. Can we not make the transition from automated aerospace killing to automated aerospace exploration of the solar system in which we live? Carl Sagan. Thanks, Jay. Thanks, everyone, for joining me this week. Thanks, Steve. Thank you. Thanks, Doc. Until next week, this is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by SGU Productions, dedicated to promoting science and critical thinking. For more information on this and other episodes, please visit our website at www.theskepticsguide.org. You can also check out our other podcast, the SGU 5x5, as well as find links to our blogs and the SGU forums. For questions, suggestions and other feedback, please use the Contact Us form on the website. Or send an email to info at theskepticsguide.org. If you enjoyed this episode, then please help us spread the word by leaving us a review on iTunes, Zoom, or your portal of choice.